So friends, before we um, uh, look at our scripture passage today from Romans chapter 8, um, there's something that I want to take a few minutes to address. There's uh, moments where events happen between when a service is planned and when it takes place uh, that change things a little bit, and I think that that happened uh, this week. One of the interesting things that churches have to navigate is how to balance the conversation around politics and uh, current events with what takes place uh, in the midst of our own conversations, right? Uh, there will be people, people on the one end, and I understand this, who say politics has no place in the church, none. I don't want it, especially in times like this. I don't want to talk about it. I want this to be escape from it. Uh, and I get that, right? I understand that. I get that feeling. I feel that at times as well. And you can find churches that follow that line of thinking, that no matter what's taking place in the world, their language and conversations are following a pattern and a program that is set and is not going to compromise or change in that. I find that at times appealing. I also think at times uh, it's difficult to line that up with the New Testament uh, and with God's call, which is upon all parts of our life. At the same time, there are churches that spend little time talking about anything other than politics, and every Sunday is just a diatribe on whatever took place that week, usually from one political viewpoint or another, either a very liberal perspective or a very conservative perspective, and I'm not comfortable doing that either, because I think what that does is ultimately uh, it becomes incredibly unimaginative and just reduces the kingdom of God to a, 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 a report, a weekly update from a, politi a, a political viewpoint of what the pastor happens to think. So we try to navigate our way through that. Covenant is a church with a lot of different viewpoints here. That's one of our strengths. In a world that's becoming increasingly polarized, I think it's one of our great strengths that there's people here who think differently. We want to honor that all the time. But this week... Things took place and conversations happened that I think are impossible to avoid. And we're not changing the entire service, and I'm not even changing the whole sermon today. But I don't think that it's possible to sit on the sidelines on this one and be quiet. This week, I was horrified. And there's not another word for it. Horrified. To realize that since the middle of April, our government has been systematically separating children from their parents or guardians when they are brought over the border. Many of them brought here illegally. Children of all different ages, teenagers, grade school, preschool, some children younger than one, forcibly separated from their parents or guardians and being held in separate facilities with no idea of when they will be reunited, maybe even if they will be reunited. Now, I want to say from the beginning of this, uh, I am someone who very much believes in immigration reform. My wife is an immigrant. I live with the reality of the INS and the dysfunction of the INS for the vast majority of my marriage. The INS and our immigration policies are mind-numbingly complex. And it has taken us years and a lot of money and legal fees to try to figure this out. So I am an advocate, both legal immigration reform and addressing the question of illegal immigration. I'm not somebody that just thinks, well, you know, nothing needs to happen around this. I know, I know personally that it does.
And I don't talk about this from a partisan viewpoint. Those of you who have ever listened to me, I don't fall neatly into these camps, and I'm okay with that, of one viewpoint or another. Both parties for years have kicked the can down the road on dealing with this, and we have to deal with it. But this is not partisan, and to me, this isn't about politics. This is how we treat people, and this is how we treat families, and this is how we value families and relationships. This is how we treat children. And friends, the Bible has plenty to say about that. And this week, our attorney general, when pressed about why this policy is being enacted and chosen to be enacted, over 2,000 children now have been separated forcibly from their parents or guardians, quoted the Bible as justification for why this happens. And not just quoted the Bible, but quoted the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13, the very book we are studying this summer. And I am sure that Jeff Sessions has a lot of good qualities, and I know that he must be a very smart person to have risen to the point he has and in all the things that he has done, but it was an astoundingly poor theology that he showed. A, a shocking theology that he showed and a lack of understanding of the Bible that led him to quote Romans 13. And what he said is that the reason that this law is being chosen to being followed is because the Bible says in Romans 13 that God ordains all governments and therefore the laws of those governments must be followed. This, friends, this is the danger of doing what so often happens, which is yanking a verse or two out of the Bible and posting it up there and saying this is what it means. Because the context around this is completely different. Paul in his writings makes clear, if we look beyond this verse or two, that yes, we are to live in alignment with this as long as human laws are in alignment with God's laws and divine laws, that we can't separate the two of those one from the other. And it's, and, it's, and it's completely backwards for an official of the government in a position of power to quote that and say, so everybody has to do what we say. Paul was writing to a persecuted minority of Christians who were being hunted down and in many times killed. And they were trying to figure out, how do I live with this government that wants to kill me? Not how I'm a government official telling you when I have the authority, you have to do whatever I say. It's a completely backwards way of looking at this. Friends, the apostle Paul, whom he quoted, was killed by the Roman government for refusing to follow their laws. He was executed because he saw the law that said you have to worship Caesar as a god was immoral. Paul refused to follow that law because it was immoral. It was not in alignment with God's law, and they killed him because of it. I think Paul would be horrified to see how a verse or two of what he wrote is being used today. We see the church continue this teaching throughout history. We saw St. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages talk about this understanding that laws are to be followed as long as they are in alignment with God's law. We saw Martin Luther King use this as a justification from his letter from a Birmingham jail for while he was not following laws that were immoral in this country. And we as a congregation have often mentioned and celebrated Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in Germany was martyred because he refused to follow the laws of the government in front of him because they violated the laws of God. And I believe that this practice of dividing and separating families and children is immoral. If you hold that political position, that's your choice. But to try to use the Bible as justification for doing it, well, there are things you must have seen in the Bible that have missed my attention. 
we have been brought into this conversation publicly. So may our voices be heard this day and this week that this must end now. Now it must stop. And the leaders of both our parties need to hear that with one clear voice. That's the end of that little speech. That's sermon part one. And now we're going to return to our regularly scheduled program. Friends, now let's look at what the book of Romans actually does say and what it actually does mean as we continue with our sermon series by looking at Romans chapter 8, which we're going to bring up on the screen, verses 31 through 39. I invite you to listen to God's word to us all today. Paul writes this, he says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this day that you would speak to us all, that we might know what it is to follow you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So as we talked about last week in Romans chapter 7, we said that that the teachings of Paul are to lead us, hopefully, to living life in a particular kind of way. And that the particular kind of way is that we are to be people whose lives are marked, we said last week, by freedom and by joy, that we are people who who can literally, through our faith, be free of the rules and the expectations that are heaped upon us that tell us what to think all the time about ourselves and how to think and see ourselves and our value. And yet we also are people who can have great joy, great purpose, because God has placed you on this earth at this time for a reason, for your life to stand for something. You have a call And that that gives us purpose, divine purpose in being here for us to seek out. That we are to be people, not who just follow rules, but that our lives are meant to have both freedom and joy. Well, this week we're going to talk about two other things that our lives ought to be marked. Again, not by rules, but ought to be what Paul describes as fruit from our lives. People that we, things that we just have within us through our faith and that people notice and see around us because our faith. And the two things we're going to talk about today are hope and peace. Hope of how to live in this world in peace that is larger than whatever circumstances it in that we are living in and that we face. And to get into this idea of hope and peace, we're going to follow the teachings of the American comic strip writer, Charles Schultz, who for decades wrote the Peanuts cartoon, Charlie Brown, uh, 
And what we're going to do is this. It's going to be a little different. We're going to bring this comic strip up on the screen, but so that it's big enough for you to read, we're going to first read through it just silently, okay? So there's going to be silence here, and it's just going to flip through lens, uh, screen, uh, uh, I don't know what we call it, slide by slide, so that you can read it. And then at the end, we'll go back and read it together, okay? And keep the idea of, of peace and hope in your minds as we do it. So we're going to bring it up. Okay, now this is not the key to how to have hope and peace. This would be why so many of us maybe don't. Just so that the podcast this week does not think we've completely lost it here, we're going to read this together a second time through. And again, I invite you to hold out this idea of hope and peace before us as we do it. So let's re-go through it. First off, you have Charlie Brown and I think it's Peppermint Patty. I'm not a, I'm not a PhD expert on peanuts, but I'm pretty certain uh, this is Peppermint Patty. Uh, and Peppermint Patty starts off by saying, what do you think security is, Chuck? Now, when we think security, that's a word, but what lies at the, whole, the, uh, the root of feeling secure in your life? Well, I would say that's peace. We're calm. We're, we are at peace, and therefore we feel secure. What do you think security is, Chuck? Security? Because this is what eight-year-olds do when they're lying under a tree on a summer's day talking about. Charlie Brown says, security is sleeping in the back seat of the car. I love that. When you're a little kid and you've been somewhere with your mom and dad and it's night and you're riding home in the car, you can sleep in the back seat. You don't have to worry about anything. Your mom and dad are in the front seat and they do all the worrying. They take care of everything. Peppermint Patty says, that's real neat. But then Charlie Brown, the dark cloud, comes back in and says, but it doesn't last. Suddenly you're grown up and it can never be that way again. Suddenly it's over and you'll never get to sleep in the backseat again. Never. Peppermint Patty says, never? Charlie Brown says, absolutely never. Hold my hand, Chuck. Now, in our own way, we can relate to this, right? I remember the first time I drove my oldest daughter home from the hospital right after she was born, and the feeling of insecurity as we drove, as my fingers were white knuckle locked around the steering wheel, probably driving 15 miles an hour in a 50 mile per hour speed zone, because one of the things you realize is there's some truth in this, right? All of a sudden, you've got a lot of responsibility on your shoulder. As a child, you wanted to get in the front street and be an adult and have all that responsibility, and now that you have it, it's pretty scary. And one of the reasons that it is scary is that we learn as adults this, we learned that our parents were never in as much control as we thought they were, right? That's why it's saying not only are you now in the front seat, but you can never go back because what you learn as an adult, especially with driving a car, but in so many situations, I don't have control. 
Like security, this isn't secure. I can't control what another driver is going to do. I can't control what they were doing before they got in the car that might impair their ability to drive. I can't control if we run over a nail or have a blowout at 50 miles an hour on the road. I can't control if a child jumps out in front of us or an animal jumps out in front of us and we have to swerve to get out of the way. There is so much just in driving a car that I have no control over and no ability. And once I learn that fact, it is impossible to go back to finding security in the backseat, right? And this is true of life. It's certainly not just about driving a car. This is an illustration of the fact that so many of us have worry and stress and anxiety and fear uh, in our lives because difficult times, difficult situations, many of which we can't control, are real. And there is nothing at times that we can do about it. Suffering, difficulty, stress is real. And there is nothing in our faith that says that we're going to be spared from that. This is not a romantic comedy where we just get to check out for an hour and a half. This deals with what life really is, both the good and the hard. And what we see in our life is that there is a way of responding to our suffering, right? When a chapter in our story comes along that's going to be hard or stressful or difficult in our lives, our families, or in our work, human beings kind of do the same thing almost every time. And what we do is we run to how the chapter in the story begins. What's the cause of this? One of the great conversations that I have, and it's an honor to have it as a pastor with people who are going through hard times, is why is this happening to me? Why is God letting this happen? We naturally run to how the chapter begins when it comes to difficulty and hardship, and we focus our energy and attention there. And that's not a bad thing, because we're going to learn a lot from that, right? So there's good stuff to running into how, the, how that chapter begins. There's things we're going to learn about ourselves. And this sounds weird when you say it, but if we think about it, it's true for all of us. Sometimes when we look at how this chapter and that story begins, we're going to see that some of the causes of suffering for ourselves and those around us is actually us. When we look at how the chapter begins, we're going to see that our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our desire to get what we want, how we want it, or our unhappiness has ripple effects all around us to people. And when it starts causing hard times, one of the things that happens in the beginning is we can see things about ourselves and hopefully learn and grow. We can change patterns. We can notice things about ourselves. Um, So it's good to look at the front end of that. Or maybe we learn when we look at the front end of how suffering or difficulty or anxiety or worry happens, you see other things. You see that the woundedness of other people can cause us to struggle through difficult times. Maybe our response to someone in our family, maybe our response to someone at work, maybe our kind of relationship, and we have to figure out, how do I change these patterns? Or do I need to pull back from this? Or what are the things I need to do here? Because when I look at the beginning, I can start seeing these patterns and learning how to deal in it, and maybe even changing some of them. So it's a good thing to look at how the chapter begins, but that doesn't bring us hope. And that doesn't bring us peace. And what the Apostle Paul is writing about here in Romans 8 is that there is a response of Christians that needs to be more complete than that. Not to ignore the stuff at the beginning of the chapter when it comes to difficulties. Paul wants us to look at that and learn. But Paul also says that at times we can become so focused on that or so focused on the difficulty or hardship or stress or anxiety that we forget to remember how the chapter ends. And what he reminds us of in chapter 8 is that these sufferings will be redeemed. Because we will be, he says, through Christ more than conquerors. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That there's something about God and God's love and the power of that 
that means that not only do we as Christians look at how things begin, but we always have to keep in mind how the chapter ends so that we can have hope and peace even when things are difficult. Now, Paul is a Pharisee. He's very smart. He's been educated and all this. And so he says, you know, I want to offer you evidence of that. This is what we just read. He says the evidence of that is the person of Jesus. He says that when we're needing to be reminded of how the chapter ends, he says, number one, remember the fact that we can have hope and peace because God has sent Jesus into the world. And the fact that God has sent Jesus into the world teaches us that when we go through hard times, we are reminded that we still have value and worth in the eyes of God. Paul says that the reason God sent Jesus into the world is because he cares for and loves this world. Or as John writes in chapter 3, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not to condemn the world, but so that those who have it, who know him will have everlasting life. It is God's love and God's value. One of the, the little voices that can come and whisper to us when we are going through hard times or when people in our families or our friends, people we love, go through real struggles is that those little voices come that say to us, does God care? Why is this happening to me? Why would God, is God punishing me for something? Is God really so good? Or if God, is God really there? And Paul is saying to us that it is in the person of Jesus that we are reminded that you are not forgotten, that you have worth, that you have value, and God will not leave your side in this. It gives us hope and gives us peace. But the second thing that Paul says is that as we see the person of Jesus, we not only see that God values this world and that Jesus has himself endured suffering, which he has, but he says that in the end we see in the person of Jesus that that suffering will not be the end of the story. That Jesus encountered difficulty and he encountered pain and he encountered loss and he encountered betrayal and he encountered torture and he encountered death but that none of that could be contained. That God's love brought new life and healing and reconciliation and resurrection in this world. And so what Paul is writing to this persecuted group of Christians, to people who know struggles and who know hardship, like all of us know struggles and hardship, is to say, yes, let's look and do what human beings do. Let's look at how these seasons and chapters begin, but always hold in mind that suffering will be overcome and redeemed. And as we hold on to that, and when we hold on to that as people of faith, we have hope. We even have peace, even if the circumstances of our life are not perfect. Peace is not the result of circumstances all working out. Peace is something we journey to as a discipline of faith, a trusting in God's presence. Now, as we kind of close this down, we might be saying, well, I don't know exactly what, I mean, what practically does that mean? In Austin, Texas, in 2018, with what I've got going on in my life, I hear this, how does this impact how I go and live out there today? And there's a couple of different ways we can get at that. The first way is we can do what sometimes we do, and it's not always bad, but is that we get like very biblical theological seminary-ish, right? And so we sit there and go, here's what this word means in the Greek, and when you go back to the Greek, and you gotta understand this, and let's analyze this, and let's hammer away at definitions, and meaning, and facts, and knowledge, and linear thinking, and then at the end, we have complete understanding of this equation, and then that's it. I'm not going to go that path, just so, just so you know. If I didn't do the setup with enough of how not to do it, we're not going to go in that path. Sometimes that works, but this is a claim. This isn't about facts and even about intellect so much as it's about a claim of what the power of God's love is. And this is just something we receive, not dissect. It's something we trust in. 
And so the way that I'd like to get at what this means is I want to tell you a story. I want to actually read you a story. And before I read it to you, I need you to go somewhere with me. And the place I need you to go right now is I want you to actually move towards the things that cause you worry and fear and anxiety. Maybe the things you're suffering with. Maybe the things that people you love are suffering with. The things that keep you up at night. The concerns and worries that you have. I don't want this to be a time we check out and just sing some good song. I actually want you to move towards it right now. And I want you, throughout the next few minutes, to hold that in front of you. The parable, the story that I'm going to read to you, is actually uh, an email that was sent to someone that has had a huge influence in my life, and many of you have heard of him before. His name is Steve Hayner. Steve was one of my closest friends, a mentor to me. Uh, He was the former president of InterVarsity in Columbia Theological Seminary. Uh, where Beth and I both went to seminary. And um, right after I started here, again, as many of you know, Steve was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, and he died my first January here. And I had the honor of being with him as, even though I was in Austin, went back to visit a couple of times as he was walking through this and had the distinct honor of just God having me there for his last 24 hours and being with him as he passed away. It was an honor where we got to do things in those 20 hour, 20, last 24 hours that were holy, that I still hold on to today as Steve was laying in bed and, and, and was waiting to die. He asked us to read some scripture together. I got to read the Psalms to him. He asked us to sing some songs, uh, which unfortunately I had to do, and he had to listen to me uh, sing these songs with him and with some other people. Um, but these were ways that he did this journey. But the last thing he asked me to do a number of times was to read this email that he had received from a friend and former coworker and colleague named Steve Harrington. Now, I've never met Steve Harrington, but Steve Harrington was a former coworker of Steve that wrote this email, and I'm going to read the email that Steve loved to hear. And I don't want you to hear this as Steve Hayner's story. I want you to keep your own stresses and struggles and anxieties and worries in front of you, and I want you to hear as if this was written to you, okay? This is from the book Joy in the Journey that, Steve and, that was published after Steve died. Cheryl, his wife, came and shared with us here. And it's the entry she wrote for the day he died, January 31st. Steve Harrington wrote this. My favorite unique memory with you was years ago at Wellspring Retreat Center. You remember we were given various iterations of the trust walk. In one of those exercises, we were supposed to guide our blindfolded partner from behind using only our voice. You walked in front of me and I directed you with only words into a small thicket of woods. I had you stepping over logs and ducking down below strong branches. You went slowly and could feel dead wood snapping beneath your feet and all the twigs on your face as you brushed past them. You knew that you were walking through a very thick and tangled terrain, a precarious path for someone blindfolded and having to trust only the words spoken to them. Then I brought you almost out of the woods to the very edge of a large, flat, grassy field and stopped you six inches from the grass. You were still standing in the woods, blindfolded. You remember, right? You had no idea that all the tangles and tripping hazards and undergrowth and slapping branches and hard trees were behind you, and that before you was only a broad, flat, lush field 
of green grass. You were still in the woods, imagining yourself stuck in the midst of all the tangles and hazards. Only I knew that before you, it was all level and open and free of any encumbrance or danger or fear. Then I said, at the count of three, I want you to run straight forward as fast as you can. I counted to three. One, two, three. And with great trust, you took off running, charging ahead, screaming your lungs out, flailing your arms, worried that you were still careening through the woods, but also soon suddenly laughing to find out that you were out of the tangled danger and running easily into a flat field full of soft and forgiving grass. This is the journey ahead for you, my friend, whenever it is that you take it. The Word is behind you, but also goes before you. The Word made flesh walks with you and is within you. And therefore, all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. The nausea and the discomfort, the fear and weakness, the tears and the treatments, the tripping hazards and the threatening thicket will be over and you will run full speed, screaming and laughing into the forgiving arms of grace and the healing heart of God. I know that in life there are Moments of great pain and stress and anxiety. There are moments when the branches tear at our cheeks and the logs and undergrowth bruise our shins and we are brought to our knees in pain. But hear me now. There is a field. A level field of soft green grass and you will run in it, and so will those whom you love. Because nothing, 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 nothing in this world, neither height nor depth nor things present nor things to come, that nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Glory, hallelujah, his truth is marching on. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that you would encounter us where we are and lead us forward as people of hope and people who have peace because nothing can separate us from the promise and power of your love. May that hope and that peace well up and dwell within us all this day, this week, and always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.